Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. And uh, we are going to move on to another segment here in the brief time we have left. Stanford Graduate School of Business professor and social psychologist uh, Brian Lowry is going to be joining us. He studies the psychology of racial privilege. Undergirding his work is the notion that although many people support the ideal of a fair and just society, they sometimes end up unconsciously reinforcing inequality. And in a Washington Post opinion piece that appeared last month, Uh, Lowry describes some of the racism he experienced personally, and he calls upon white Americans to engage in a proactive way to address inequality. He joins us now to discuss his research and the article, and welcome, Brian Lowry. Thanks for having me, Michael. Glad to have you, and I should mention Brian Lowry is Professor of Organizational Behavior and Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Stanford Graduate School of Business, and we'll talk about the link to the Washington Post piece, which, by the way, uh, the opinion piece, uh, well, certainly kudos on that. It has gotten a good deal of attention, deservedly. And uh, I wanted to sort of get to the heart of it. You're sort of saying a lot of white friends were asking you, what can they do? How are you? Particularly, how are you in the wake of uh, all this terrible tragedy that we've seen unfold uh, recently? And uh, you said you've been fine since 1982 in Chicago when uh, your family moved in the neighborhood and they tried to, white number of white kids tried to blow up your car. You took us into discrimination that you personally suffered, and you said, and I'm not trying to sort of um, put words in your mouth here, I'm just going from your column, um, that what you experienced uh, was probably not as much as a lot of black men and women have experienced, but a lot of discrimination throughout your middle school years and your high school years and even into college. Yes, that's, that's correct. I um what I wanted to convey there was that even people who have um, ascended to positions of um, power or authority still have faced in their youth often the kind of discrimination that is rampant in this country um, and continue to face that. And the story, um, the stories I told, I don't think are necessarily unique. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that people didn't think of, of me as somehow a special case. You call them the lowlights of what it means to be black in America for you personally. Yeah, you know, it's um, there's a there's a lot of joy in being an African-American person in this country um, for uh, in the community. Right. So there, there's love and laughter is in all communities. But we live in a country that is uh, built on white supremacy. And for that reason, we, we also suffer um, all sorts of experiences that um, make it hard to feel as um, connected to the country, I think, as many people would like to be. 
Well, in your opinion piece, you say we all live in a malignant system and we're all unprotected from it. Uh, and I presume you're talking about all of us, but you also write about white privilege and you write about the fact that uh, there is some advice perhaps for white people and it comes in something beyond understanding. It comes in action, I guess, doesn't it for you? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that most people want to feel like they're doing the right thing. Um, and when you live in a system that allows you to feel like you're doing the right thing while you walk past or ignore incredible injustice, um, I think it, it, it mars, um, for lack of a better word, it mars your soul. And so in that sense, I think um, white people has, have as much to manage in this, as I described, in the malignant system as black people do. Um, it's, it's certainly the case, though, that for black people, the stakes are, are higher, right? It's, it's often our actual physical safety. Um, but, but I think that white people are also, um, their souls are, their, their person is um, twisted by the system that we all live in. Yeah, you talk about our collective soul, uh, sort of echoes uh, what uh, Vice President Biden has been talking about, about saving the American soul in this next election. But you also say the price of justice is a loss of privilege. Uh, define that a little bit more for us, if you could. I, I think that when you, when, as a white person in this country, um, you're allowed to see yourself in a certain way, right? You're allowed to see your humanity fully reflected. You're allowed to... Um, allowed to ignore in some sense the, the justice that exists in this country. Um, and, and so in that sense, um, I think that the, the need to like really take action um, is, in, is imperative for white folks to, to save the soul of the country. Well, you give, it seems to me, a, a very telling example that uh, has come up before on this program about white privilege uh, when you write about crack cocaine epidemic uh, as opposed to rural whites who are uh, addicted to opioid uh, and the opioid epidemic. I mean, that's the kind of sharp fissure that we see in terms of color in this country, along with, of course, the dehumanization. And there's within your article, there was an embedded video. I guess, are you familiar with that? Was that legitimate? Was that something that you decided <laughs> you wanted to? No, actually, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't look at the video. What, what video was embedded in the article? It was a, a African American man, black man, talking about the long history of visuals of black death, and uh, he said, "You don't see that many white corpses, but what you see, beginning with the open casket of Emmett Hill in uh, Emmett Till, excuse me, in Chicago, and what you see with black mothers of uh, uh, George uh, Floyd weeping, is." Um, a uh, dehumanization. Um, the videos, in other words, create a kind of distant reality outside of uh, black lives and make black lives seem insignificant. I don't know if you would go along with that thesis, but it was right there in your opinion piece. Yeah, I, I think that um, there's a separation um, that the country has from the suffering of, of uh, black people. So I think that, that that's that's true. I, I don't I don't know how I think about the witnessing of the pain and what that means about the um, recognition of humanity. So, I mean, we've, as you pointed out, Emmett Till, um, long ago, his body was put on display. Um, and I don't know that that changed how white America saw um, Black lives. Um, there's been a number of videos of Black folks being shot more recently prior to George Floyd. And I don't know um, that that had a huge effect. So I, I guess there is a way in which you could say that putting that pain on display 
um, certainly didn't do enough to humanize. Now, whether it dehumanized, I guess, is a different question. Talking with Brian Lowry, and Brian Lowry, once again, is Professor of Organizational Behavior and Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And uh, essentially, in his opinion piece, which we're talking about, he says, to white people, educate your friends, your family, demand more of leaders beyond being a cheerleader or an ally, do something to make permanent change. I'd like to hear from you, our listeners, if you'd like to join this conversation or if you have questions for Brian Lowry, I'm going to ask him about the work he does at Stanford as well uh, as ways that maybe the Stanford Business School and business community is addressing inequality. But you can join us, and I invite you to do that. Our toll-free number is available. It's 866-733-6786. Please feel free to be part of the program. Call in 866-733-6786. You can also, of course, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I was going to ask you about some of the research you've done on uh, racial privilege, but also what the business community is doing to address inequality. What can and should be doing? Yeah, so the, the work I do generally looks at how um, white people respond to evidence of white privilege. Um, and what I, I find with uh, some collaborators is that after being exposed to white privilege, whites often deny the existence of privilege. And when that's not available, they, they try to personally distance themselves. They say, yes, certainly um, white folks have privilege in this country, but I'm not privileged. And here are the reasons I'm not. Um, and in that, in that instance, what people are doing is equating privilege with ease, with the idea that everything in life is great, which is not at all what, what privilege is. Um, and when they aren't allowed or aren't able to distance themselves from it personally, then what you see is more support for dismantling, um, dismantling the advantages they enjoy, giving those advantages up as a way of possibly atoning for um, the, the atoning for the privileges they had. So the time for talk uh, has passed. I think so. I, I mean, I think the time for talk was long past. I think this is really just another opportunity. Um, it's not the first opportunity, but it's another opportunity. And, and we see people in the streets um, right now uh, taking action. And we see people pulling down symbols. We see corporate corporations um, taking down um, brands or, for example, Aunt Jemima brand taking down that, that um, the depiction of a black woman as a mammy. Um, that, that's all that's been long overdue. And these, these changes are, are a good start. And what I, I hope what we see going forward is not just symbolic changes, not just the going out and marching, which is in fact easy to some extent, but see more, see changes that ch that shift um, the economic landscape. Changes but we're that... also, excuse me, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but we also keep oh, hearing no, we, need, we need more and better conversations about race too. So when you um, say the talk is over or talk should be over, do you mean that as well? Um, I think we certainly we need better conversations, but honestly, what I, I look more for are changes in outcomes. What I'm more interested in seeing is the um, reduction in health disparities, the reduction in disparities in educational outcomes, reduction in the wealth disparities. Like pushing toward those sorts of changes are more important to me, honestly, than um, further conversation. Again, our guest is Brian Lowry, and let's bring a caller on. Mary, join us. You're on the air. Um, yes, my question is, um, what do you think about local communities, affluent communities that continue today to prevent 
changing the zoning laws to allow low-income housing in our communities. And these are so-called liberal communities. Thank you for the question. Um, Mary's calling from Portola Valley, by the way. Go ahead, Brian. <laughs> um, I think this goes to the point I made just a, a moment ago about um, real change requires changes to the systems that leave Black folks out of, um, out of the economic um, benefits associated with living in this country. And one way that we do that is by not offering um, or not creating opportunities to live in certain communities. Um, and I think that those zoning laws are a, a part of that. But what you see in essence is that um, it really helps the community and um, black folks and the people, obviously the people already in the community when you have um, more integrated, more mixed communities. And let me thank Mary for her call. And uh, I, I said I would ask you a little bit more about your research. And I'd like to ask you about, you've written about social penalty, penalties uh, in interracial relationships for white women. Uh, it's more costly for white women than it is for, for that matter, for white men in these kind of interrelation, uh, interracial relationships? Oh, yes. So, I, I mean, there's a, a long history of interracial relationships, mostly at, in, in the time of slavery, more, it's more accurate to call it rape. Um, and that white men have, have not faced penalties for engaging in interracial relationships to the same extent that um, white women have, and certainly not that um, black men have. Um, so what you see there, I think, is the intersection of racism and sexism to a large extent. That's why I, I think that paper is really interesting in that way that um, white women are also, in some sense, being subject to um, a racist system and that there's an attempt to control them um, as, I, I would, as I and my collaborator would say, a resource for the white community. Again, our guest is Brian Lowry, and he's professor of organizational behavior at Stanford and senior associate dean for academic affairs in the Graduate School of Business. We've got a Palo Alto caller. Susan joins us. Susan, good morning. Hi. Um, I'm uh, wondering if a very simple but important ask uh, for uh, the black community could be that Every uh, employer uh, looks at um, the quality uh, of payment uh, for um, a black and white uh, or people of color uh, and uh, their pay and their uh, payroll. Professor Lowry. Um, so I assume you're talking about uh, pay equity. Um, yes, I am. I yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be, I think that's right, it'd be fantastic if people were um, more aware of the differential in pay and that employees had a, a way of knowing what that is and employers were responding to those disparities. So I, I agree with that completely. I think that would be a, a, welcome, a welcome change. And I thank Susan for the call. Gregory wants to know when you say whites must give up their privileges, what do you specifically mean? That's a great question. Um, what I mean by that is um, access to, for example, example certain jobs, um, the feeling of uh, ownership of positions at certain educational institutions, the sense that um, the world they experience, which is really um, designed to reflect who they are and how they see themselves, is not the world as it is, just the world that they live in. Um, 
the ability to avoid the discomfort of engaging with racism that they that they see. Um, all these things I think are, are comforts associated with white privilege that would need to be given up for us to create a just society. And what kind of response did you get to the opinion piece? Um, <clears throat> most of the responses were good. Look, I, I uh, have read many opinion pieces about race in this country, and I know enough not to look at the comment sections of those of uh, my own. Um, and I did receive a number of emails, and for the most part, those emails were um, very positive. Um, and you wound people, up at... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm glad to hear that. I was just going to also say you wound up at Stanford, despite the fact that one of the, uh, shall we say, low-light experiences that you write about occurred at Stanford before you took a position there. Uh, so, yeah, so I was accepted into a graduate program at Stanford. Um, I, I ended up not coming to Stanford or going to Stanford for graduate school. Um, but during my visit, um, someone called the police because uh, presumably I looked suspicious. Um, and the police were polite enough. Um, but <clears throat> it was just an, another um, instance of a recognition of not belonging in certain spaces. Right? And um, I, that was not a particularly shocking experience for me. And um, I still feel like to a large extent that the community that Stanford exists in and many, um, many prestigious institutions don't necessarily feel like welcoming places for um, black folks. Well, again, I recommend the article. Uh, we're going to put it on our website uh, so our listeners can get it there. And uh, it's good to have you on with us. Appreciate very much your being with us this morning on Forum. Uh, thanks for having me, Michael. Uh, the link is on our website. And that's Brian Lowry again, who's Professor of Organizational Behavior and Senior Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And uh, Forum is produced by Judy Campbell, Tina Larberg, Ariana Prail, Blanca Torres, and Susan Britton. Our senior editor is Dan Zoll. Our engineer is Danny Bringer, and our intern is Jamison Weiss. Executive editor is Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. And you can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum or would like to hear on Forum by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. In the hour ahead, we're going to talk about the whole controversy over statues and monuments and who should stand and who should fall. That's next. Join us. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.